Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I'd just like to let you know that if you're enjoying the Spike podcast or any of our other podcasts or articles or essays that we produce on a daily basis, then the best way to show your appreciation is by giving us a donation. Spiked is free and we want to keep it free. And the best way to help us do that is by giving us either a one-off or a regular donation. It's really easy to help us out if you just go to the Spiked homepage at spiked-online.com, go to the top right corner and click on the big red donate button. None of our work would be possible without your donations, so we cannot thank you enough. So that's www.spiked-online.com, big red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the new EU, Andy No, and Glastonbury. We have chosen two women and two men for the four key positions. A perfect gender balance. She's the surprise choice for head of the European Commission. Now, why has there been so much horse training? It is not democratic at all. With a failed German defence minister, a former finance minister found guilty of negligence. Why is Europe in good hands with people like that? This week, the European Council appointed the new leaders of the EU... After days of wrangling behind closed doors, outgoing Belgian PM Charles Michel was appointed President of the European Council. German Defence Minister Ursula von der Leyen was nominated to head the Commission and IMF Chief Christine Lagarde was handed out the top job at the European Central Bank. On the same day, the European Parliament reopened in Strasbourg. Brexit Party MEPs caused outrage by turning their backs during the European anthem. Meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats wore bright yellow T-shirts saying, bollocks to Brexit. So, uh, Ella, has the EU's new term got off to a good start? (laughs) Well, funnily enough, it seems to have caused more of an issue in England Mm. uh, than it has done in Europe, because I've uh, heard reports from lots of different MEPs saying, actually, no one was really that bothered within the European Parliament. It seems to be the media commentators over here that have really got their nicks in a twist over it. And the whole turning your backs thing has become, it's turned into this sort of like weird statement about polite society. Mm. And people have forgotten that actually using the, that kind of a protest is common. So, you know, like just a cursory look back in the last 10 years, earlier this year, women in the House of Commons in Canada turned their back on Justin Trudeau in 2013. Protesters turned their back on Margaret Thatcher's funeral. And mm. in terms of being polite, that seems pretty impolite. And in 2011, I remember this because it was when I was at university, uh, free Palestine protesters turned their backs and disrupted Ode to Joy, the performance of Ode to Joy at the prom. So mm. what this is, is people don't like the Brexit party. Yeah. And lots of the media in the UK do not like the Brexit party, don't like Brexit. And so they're pretending like this is the most awful 
an insulting thing to do, not just to the European Parliament, but also to the poor children who are playing the instruments. You can see right through it. And then at the more extreme end of the scale, people are likening it to the Nazis. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> you, know, you can laugh and we should laugh at it because it's ridiculous, but it also just shows the utter coarsening of politics today where you can compare the actions of the Nazis to a protest against an institution like the EU. Yeah, I mean, the comparison that they're making is between members of the Nazi party turning their backs on a Jewish speaker in in the Reichstag. I mean, it's a completely preposterous comparison. I mean, Tom, what do you think? I thought the Nazi comparisons were really revealing because, as we've been talking about, this accusation gets thrown around so much. But the intensity with which seemingly, you know, well-educated people were mm. throwing around this comparison was really quite striking. You had Gavin Esler, who was obviously a former BBC presenter, journalist, turned um, Change UK, RIP candidate in the MEP elections who was just going on about it for hours you know and of course Remainers have form when it comes to these kinds of comparisons. David Lammy famously saying that European research group of hard Brexiteers, just, you know, conservatives who want to get out of the European Union as fast as possible, were not just like the Nazis, but worse than the Nazis, you mm. know, so this is really quite insane. And, it, you know, you do well not to try and either... um deride the faculties or impute the motives of your opponents. But I can't see anyone making that comparison unless they're historically illiterate, kind of thick, or just openly lying and trying to do it to delegitimise their opponents. I mean, for instance, as Ella says, this is a form of protest within democratic norms that people do all the time. I mean, as Brendan pointed out in his piece on Spike this week, the Nazis also used to give out leaflets. Does that mean that anyone who gives out a leaflet is engaged in some sort of Goebbels-like propaganda exercise? Mm. It's ridiculous. Um, and I think it really shows how debased um, political discussion has become. And as Brendan pointed out in his article, you know, there's something really dangerous with this kind of, the way in which these accusations are bandied about to the extent that it kind of relativises what the Nazi party was, as if it was just something unpleasant, right-wing, something people in polite society don't like, when, as we all know, it was something far darker and more terrifying than all of that. And it is also quite interesting not to get sucked into this stuff, but when you've got a group of people who are going around trying to overthrow a democratic vote, number of people within that whole Remainer movement have called for their opponents to either be locked up for them to be yeah. banned from television um you start throwing around far right accusations they're going to bounce back at you as well not that we should get drawn in but i think it's faintly ridiculous that these kind of remainer authoritarians are you know trying to throw mud at the other side in this way i mean i also think it's just it's reminiscent of the kind of we've all seen the marches uh, throughout london and other there were other mass marches with we love the eu mm. and a kind of skin crawling affection you know deep affection for the eu in this kind of way that i just can't understand is coming up again in relation to this you know the suggestion that it's impolite to protest i mean it's the eu is an institution it's yeah. not a person and the brexit party meps whatever you think of their protest actually as that happens i think it's been relatively effective because everyone's been talking about yeah. it yeah. for the last few days and so success well done you've got the issue of brexit on the agenda but we have no obligation to be um, faithful or subservient or polite to the eu and to fellow meps that job there as elected Brexit MEPs is to represent Brexit, which mm. means actually doing something symbolic to stick your two fingers up to you because they shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And aside from all the excitement about Nazis and um, backturning and protests, there was actually something quite serious going on in the EU as well this week. You know, the finally, after days and days of deliberation, we, we found out who were going to be our new overlords, essentially. Uh, Tom, do you want to uh, tell us a bit about these... Um, 
candidates. Yes. So these um, announcements were made after the European Council's kind of a classic EU all-night meeting, people knocking heads together trying to mm. get um, the candidates out. The upshot of it is, let's talk about, I suppose, the three main appointments or recommendations. First of all, as you say, Charles Michel, the um, acting Belgian Prime Minister, is going to be President of the European Council. Um, Ursula von der Leyen has been put forward for the European Parliament's um, approval to be President of the European Commission. She was up to now Defence Minister and Angela Merkel's um, CDU-led government. And probably most controversially, Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF, has been um, put forward to be um, Chief of the European Central Bank. I think both the kind of process of the way in which these candidates were chosen and the the calibre of the candidates themselves kind of really sum up everything that's wrong with the EU. Mm. First of all, because no one voted for these people. Most of them didn't even stand in the European elections, and yet they find themselves in positions of huge power over Europe Interestingly, as we've been talking about previously on this podcast, um, up until this point, the EU were going along the Spitzenkandidaten system, um, something they introduced only in 2014 to try and give more of a kind of democratic appearance, at least to this process, whereby mm. basically each block in the parliament has a lead candidate and the understanding being that more or less the biggest group, their lead candidate would more or less become president of the commission. That entirely broke down. Yeah. <laughs> it went back to um, horse trading behind closed doors. And I think you can really see how completely messed up the process is by the fact that Angela Merkel started out backing Manfred Weber, who was the EPP centre-right candidate. Then um, over the course of about the past week, she got behind this plan to put forward Franz Timmermans, who was Mm. the centre-left candidate. Then in the end, her own defence minister ends up being put forward and she actually abstains (laughs) on the vote because of how she knows it's going to go down domestically. It's so distorted and mad. So not only is this very anti-democratic, but also for an institution that has a reputation for cronyism, for nepotism, for corruption, and for general tinnedness. The calibre of these people is, yeah. is remarkable. So um, Ursula von der Leyen um, has bit, really gone down as a pretty disastrous defence minister. She's, all, she's seen as a bit of a busted flush by this point. She is... She is- Technically, the least popular um, cabinet minister in Germany. Well, there you go. <laughs> you think of Charles Michel as well. Of course, he recently, um, I say recently, six months ago, lost a no confidence motion, and it's only because of um, the slightly strange politics, shall we say, of Belgium that he's still acting prime minister. Is really burgeoning this idea that um, the European Union is basically where um, very unpopular domestic politicians go to, you know, have a nice life for a few <laughs> years. Um, and then Christine Lagarde, who, as we all know, was not only um, implicated in a pretty crazy scandal in France where she was actually found guilty of um, negligence in relation to state funds being kind of scrawled away to this um, very rich man allegedly um, for buying his support for Nicolas Sarkozy's government. Um, But also she was one of the lead punishers of Greece over the whole sovereign debt crisis who, as Yanis Varoufakis points out in his memoir, openly admitted to him in private that the austerity measures which were imposed in exchange for the bailouts would actually make things worse but publicly backed them anyway. Um, So this is effectively what the EU does. And I think it's fascinating that all of the Remainers who have been, you know, busy crying over the Ode to Joy stunt or making or putting up, you know, Goebbels memes have had nothing to say about this. Either it seems because they don't actually really care about the EU. They just care about bashing British people domestically that they disagree yeah. with. Or at the same time, they recognise what a shower this is um, and they seem incapable of owning it because who could, you know? Yeah, I mean, in a world of conspiracy theories where, you know, your Caroline Cadwallers or anyone who wants to spin any kind of conspiracy gets such a massive hearing, 
if it's the right kind of conspiracy. <laughs> and then you have, I'm, I'm not exactly trying to say that this is sort of a conspiracy theory within the EU, but, you know, even things like both Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen, um, their fathers were in high power position mm. within the EU, you know, that kind of nepotism. Second ger- generation yeah. Eurocrat. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. Isn't there a bit of a spin there? Can't you connect some dots there if you wanted to? But there's this just blatant double standards when it comes to looking at the way that the European Union works. I mean, yeah. I'm sure lots of our listeners will have watched, as I did, with kind of open-mouthed the EU documentary, which really was shocking because you did get to see right there in front of your eyes the backroom deals, you know, Michel Barnier freaking out when he saw that a camera was in the side of the room watching him and Guy Verhofstadt basically conspire over what was going to happen next. And all of this stuff goes on Mm. and it doesn't make you crazy. It doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist to point it out. It is true. And the reason why is because this is how politicians who work within the European Union think democracy should happen by a closed set of elites who make decisions themselves for the what they seem to be the benefit of the masses. But of course, the masses never get a look in to decide what that future might be. Well, it was interesting. The director of that documentary, Behind Closed Doors, said that a lot of the time the officials weren't bothered by the cameras because what they thought that what they were doing is normal and they didn't realise, you know, they had no idea how this would play domestically. And and I think that this week, more than anything, just highlights how right we were to vote for Brexit, because this is an institution that is totally anti-democratic, totally untransparent. The people in it are totally unaccountable to us or the citizens of Europe. And the sooner we leave, the better, quite frankly. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. At the weekend, journalist Andy No was beaten and hospitalised by a mob of Antifa protesters in Portland. No was documenting a counter-protest by the Rose City Antifa group, who were protesting against the Proud Boys, a right-wing group who described themselves as Western chauvinists. Footage shows people dressed in all black punching No and then throwing milkshake at him. Strangely, many journalists refused to condemn the assault, attacking No and his work instead. Tom, what do you make of this incident? I thought it was absolutely... Despicable, And I think what was so striking about it, as we say, was not the fact that it happened. I mean, it's horrible to say, but given the fact that um, this particular journalist, I think before the um, attack itself, he'd already flashed up online that um, Antifa in Portland were going to target him, that they were mm. putting around this idea that he was a white supremacist, all the rest of it. Just for the fact that he's, from what I understand, it kind of centre-right photojournalist and writer for Colette, um, who has been documenting Antifa and been very, very heavily critical of them, had some run-ins with them before. Um on that sense, it felt horribly kind of inevitable. But what was particularly shocking about it, I think, was the response to it. You had a mix of people suggesting that he'd put people up to this um, in order to make money from a Kickstarter, which was later you know, put up in support of him. There was this suggestion that he went down there purposely to kind of provoke people into mm. attacking him so that he could play the victim. Um, and even without that, you had this really weird response from a lot of quite mainstream people, which is to say, first of all, let's make clear he's not a journalist, you know, <laughs> as if to try and justify the fact that um, a bloke who went there purely just to document what from what 
there's no evidence to suggest he was doing anything other than just kind of filming what was going on at this protest, almost just trying to contextualise that kind of violence, and as well as the attempts to, as Antifa have been doing for a long time, present him as, as far-right fascistic, despite the fact I don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. I thought the milkshaking thing was interesting mm. as well, not because as um, some people might suggest that, you know, this is where you get if you allow people to milkshake people, you know. Antifa have been, particularly in Portland, have been going around beating up people they dislike for quite some time. I don't think they needed a little bit of encouragement from the person who threw that banana milkshake at Nigel Farage. Yeah. But it, I think it was symbolic, particularly of the fact that when that kind a spate of milkshakings happened in Britain during the EU elections, it really drew out a lot of support from the commentariat, you know. And I think what that really demonstrates is that even though the actions of Antifa in Portland are, are incredibly shocking, and not just what happened to Andy, no, you know, there's footages of people basically taking a crowbar to the back of an old man's head mm. as he's walking down the street, it's the fact that the commentariat have given tacit support for this kind of outlook at the very least you know because the people involved in antifa strange and violent though they are are convinced that the world has gone to the dogs that there are nazis everywhere mm. that there are hateful people everywhere spewing ideas that hateful ideas are in and of themselves dangerous and will lead to violence down the line therefore you need to crush your opponents and make sure that they can't organize in public these are just kind of a more hardcore version of the sentiments expressed um, by a lot of people in the mainstream centre-left, sometimes even centre-right press ever since 2016. Um, so there was an element of it which was incredibly shocking, but also kind of feeling slightly inevitable because it feels like this is where things have been going for many months, it feels like. Yeah, Ella. Yeah, it's really interesting that it was set up, the Antifa protest was set up as being milkshakes themed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, so incredibly lame, even symbolically, you know, mm. the idea of a milkshake rather than, people used to throw rotten vegetable at people, they didn't like things slightly cooler than milkshakes <laughs> putting that silly point aside what it shows is that really these protests and these outbursts and these acts of violence aren't about winning any kind of political ground it's about knowing that if you milkshake someone it will go online and it will be shared on social media by mm. the right kinds of people in this case uh, by journalists and people within positions of political power in the UK and the US who seem, as Tom says, who just are giving tacit to support to this kind of action. And it's all about that kind of gotcha moment. And, you know, it's so cheap and, and you know, obviously has devastating consequences for someone like Andy, you know, who gets caught up in it and who, you know, who gets brutalised. It was a really horrible thing that happened to him. It'd be a horrible thing that happened to anyone. Yeah. But it shows that... This is just such a, we've made this point before on the Spike podcast, such a low point for politics. And one of the things is about how do you respond to it? And Brendan wrote a piece for Spike this week detailing the attack, but also saying that be warned and be careful because the response to this also has been calls to turn Antifa into a terrorist organisation, to criminalise them, to really clamp down heavy on not just violent actions, but also any kind of expression of Antifa support, which mm. would be against free speech. And so let's not let's not sink down to this level of politics forevermore because we have to rise above it. Yeah. That's... At the risk of sounding like Michelle Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I think one, one thing that was really interesting in the, in the context specifically of Portland, which is somewhere where, you know, Andy No has been, you know, documenting Antifa. They seem to be, I don't think there are any fascists in Portland, but there seem to be a hell of a lot of anti-fascists. Yeah, there's a supply and demand problem. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just the commentariat who are giving tacit support yeah. to groups like this. It, it, you know, the mayor of Portland has been accused of basically coddling these, mm. these groups of people. I mean, the police union, for instance, have said that the police are basically handcuffed in his words, um, that they're not expected to basically treat Antifa people equally, you know, 
And a no in the Wall Street Journal says that, you know, officers told me they would not approach the suspect who had attacked him, even though he was in sight, because it might, quote unquote, incite the crowd. So it's really interesting that there are several layers of authority that are kind of lending legitimacy yeah. to to this kind of violence. Mm. Um, and But I also agree with you. I mean, you know, this Antifa thing is, is not like a, it's certainly not um, a particularly well organised and, and coherent um, group. You know, the attempts to call them terroristic or anything like that, it, you know, does go a bit far. But it, it seems as if when people are genuinely calling violence, you expect the police to intervene if they're right there. I bet they're quite happy to get stuck into them as well, you know, yeah. <laughs> what most police officers like. Yes, no, that is really striking. And I think that's one of the things that really needs to be taken into account with the um, discussion, because part of that really weird knee-jerk contextualising is to say, look, you know, Antifa, this is disgusting, but at the same time, they're not a domestic terrorist group. The most domestic terrorism is committed by far-right terrorists in the US, which is all very true. But the thing that makes... Antifa such a shocking phenomenon is, as you say, Fraser, it's less the fact that they exist. It's more the fact that there seems seemingly no pushback against them mm. whatsoever. Um, partly because, as you say, the mayor, Ted Wheeler, seems to be turning a blind eye to it, or at least has been accused of that. But also because I think there is this unwillingness, there is this kind of discomfort, partly because I think of a kind of weird tribalism that a lot of people feel that Antifa are on some level the good guys, as mad as they are. Yeah. Um, but also because there is... The, the thing that's fascinating about the Antifa lot is that they are fundamentally have a warped sense of society. They live in Portland, the most, as you were saying, liberal, progressive kind of city imaginable, and yet they see fascists everywhere. Mm. Um, you see some of the mug shots, they don't look like ordinary people, you know. Blue Hair Brigade. They are the Blue Hair Brigade. Um, very strange group of people. But what's most shocking, and I think what contributes to the willingness um, to turn a blind eye to them, to make excuses, to try and contextualise what they do to the point of trying to play it down a little bit is the fact that that crazy blue-haired worldview is actually quite mainstream mm. these days particularly if you think about really Antifa in Portland seem to kick off um, in the wake of the 2016 election you know and the idea that Donald Trump is some kind of fascist and has ushered in a new far-right politics in America is something you can read in the New York Times every day mm. um, so I think that's something which really has to be taken into account, which is no Antifa are not some sort of group on a par with kind of Islamists or kind of white supremacists insofar as the size and reach and damage that they're doing. But the reason they're having such impact is because they're being effectively allowed to carry on in this way. And I think that's one thing that hasn't really been picked up upon enough. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Glastonbury returned this year after a brief hiatus and it did not disappoint. The biggest weekend in British music had some of this year's hottest weather, the hottest new music and of course gave us some of the hottest takes. With practically every British journalist at the festival, some of the column inches it generated were a little questionable, to say the least. Tom, do you want to talk us through some of the highlights? Yeah, um, Glassmere every year, as you say, kind of provokes a level of unself-awareness on the part of the British commentariat who seem to all show up there in droves <laughs> every year. But this year was particularly special. A couple of standout ones, Miranda Sawyer in The Observer wrote a piece suggesting that Glastonbury is a mirror of society um, insofar <laughs> as that it takes and popularises trends um, and makes them mainstream. And two examples she cited were health and safety culture and green <laughs> activism. 
Brilliant. Um, so it's the, a hilarious lack of recognition that, you know, Glastonbury is not Britain, um, to say the least. I think my personal favourite, though, was a piece also in The Observer as it happens um, by a journalist who went along to a positive masculinity workshop uh, in something called The Shed, where amongst other people, he was lectured by that bloke from Rizzle Kicks about positive masculinity. Um, and then there's this great moment in it where two blokes walk in. They say, what's this about? He says, positive masculinity workshop, taps the seat next to him. And they say, shy and walk off. So <laughs> But it is really interesting because I think, um, you know, those kind of slightly hilarious examples aside, the sort of outpouring that you see from the commentary every year that Glastonbury's on, the fact it gets, you know, wall-to-wall coverage in the way that a huge sporting event would normally, um, despite the fact this is supposed to be an an example of British counterculture or something like that, I think shows to how kind of mainstream and establishment the whole Glastonbury thing is, but also how for a lot of people, mainly mainly here I'm talking about the kind of commentary at cultural elite most people just go in there to have a good time yeah but there is an element that they see this as a as a kind of annual retreat from the horrors of um, mainstream british life and culture mm. particularly since brexit famously brexit happened you know midway through the festival in 2016 and damon Albarn led a chorus of condemnation from the pyramid stage so i think whilst a lot of this is very silly i think it does also speak to the sense in which um the cultural elite see glastonbury as almost like a refuge yeah from um mainstream British society a coming together of people but the right kind of people um, I think that's a big part of it as well I think, I think that's absolutely right I think mo- but it's, it is important to emphasise that most people who are spending 250 quid on a ticket to go to Glastonbury are going there to get drunk take drugs and watch some bands but yes for some reason People do, you know, people in The Guardian in particular and The Observer, I mean, it's just been full of it and, and the BBC, you know, need to offer this additional context. Yeah. This, you know, it needs to be given this um, extreme kind of um, almost beatification. Like one of the examples being, you know, Stormzy headlined and, you know, it's a good set or whatever. But then you hear everyone saying that he is making history. I mean, he's performed at a pop concert, you know, it was good, but calm because, down. Because he said, fuck Boris, I think. He said, which fuck is, Boris, you know, As yeah. we all know. Performers slagging off Tory politicians at Glastonbury is something very, very new. But, it's a very, very new, very edgy, and you know, find anyone that doesn't like. <laughs> it's, it's quite easy to find anyone anywhere who doesn't like Boris. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it was, it was kind of interesting because I watched the Stormzy set from my sofa because I couldn't afford the two hundred and fifty quid ticket to go to Glastonbury, and that's the other part of the kind of ridiculousness of suggesting that Glastonbury is a meritorious society. <laughs> Many people can't afford to go, but uh, I mean, I. I really like Stormzy. I admittedly only know a few of his songs, but I really like them. And the interesting thing is he's a grime artist. Yeah. And you watch the crowd and actually vast numbers of the people there. It's not a grime crowd, is it? No. I mean, you know, young women like me who just didn't know what was going on and, you know, enjoying the ride kind of. But also it wasn't this kind of mass thing that it was made out to be and he was kind of hyped a lot more than I think it actually was. It was uh, mm. Moments when I was watching on the telly where I thought, God, no one's really dancing. This is a bit awkward. But there's, all, I mean, the whole point about Glastonbury is like any kind of festival at which you have lots of drink, lots of drugs, lots of sun and lots of music, you'll mm. have a good time and there have, you can have profound mm. moments. So my very good friend, Michael Segalov took his father to Glastonbury and they had a very good time. And actually there was some really, he wrote this lovely piece in The Guardian, one of the few really good pieces in The Guardian, which was about what a great time time father and son had going to gay clubs doing all this kind of stuff it was really nice on the other hand you then have people making great claims about the fact of how green Glastonbury was you know David Attenborough getting up on stage and everyone cheering him and the fact that they banned plastic water bottles 
And then you hear that, you know, in the incredible heat, over 70 people got heat stroke because guess what? They couldn't carry around plastic bottles of water. So Mm. there's a a stupidness to the kind of celebration of Glastonbury as this thing that has become more than just a pop concert. And at the end of the day, you have to remember it is a pop concert that, you know, wrecks the fields and everyone's taking balloons and MDMA (laughs) and everything else. And yeah, they're having a great time talking about how profound it is that because it's kind of what happens when you take drugs until five o'clock in the morning. I do wonder if some of the columnists had heat stroke, but anyway. <laughs> it would explain a lot. No, I think that's really interesting. The point about Stormzy set and how it, it kind of, you almost had to work really hard to get the crowd kind of hyped up. I thought it was interesting that he was sort of projecting the lyrics a lot of the time, almost because they, they almost knew that they probably wouldn't know what the hell they were. Because Glastonbury, in a way, is quite has a reputation for being quite middle of the road and kind of out of step. It's been mm. a very long time for particularly rap and grime artists to be able to break through. I was there in 2008 when Jay-Z headlined and that was really controversial. I remember the outrage about that. Noel Gallagher was up in arms. But even about in 2015 when Kanye West headlined, there was a huge petition to get him <laughs> taken <laughs> off the bill because they didn't like the cut of his jib or whatever. So there's this kind of funny... Um, almost the kind of fact that Stormzy headlining was such a big deal. I mean, speaks to kind of how actually not a mirror of current society and current culture yeah. Glastonbury is. It's worth remembering that according to um, the surveys that do exist, I think the average age there was about 39. Mm. Um, there was a survey in 2015, I think, which found that Glastonbury was the number one festival choice for the over 55s. Close behind it was the BBC proms. Mm. Uh, so it tells you a little <laughs> something about it. And I think it's interesting the, because as Ella was saying, you know, anyone who goes to a festival has a really good, good time gets really messed up you know you do get into a bit of a daze you do kind of like think isn't this wonderful i just think it's quite funny how um otherwise serious political people feel that they're going to indulge and really write about and treat very seriously that kind of feeling as if it's real politics as mm. if it shows that a, a new britain is dawning as if it <laughs> that to me is kind of just six formerish slightly embarrassing kind of sentiments it's just it's just interesting to me that every year that is still put down in in the comment pages as if it's a, a kind of really serious point that people are making Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.